You're listening to Journeys, a bite-sized podcast produced by Kama DC. Kama is a volunteer-run nonprofit that works to provide a platform for immigrants and refugees living in the DMV to share their stories, skills, and ideas. I'm your host, Ben Jaffe, and this week I spoke with Krish Omera Vignaraja, the president and CEO of Lutheran Immigration and Refugee Services, LIRS largest faith-based national nonprofit exclusively dedicated to serving immigrants and refugees. Krish and I discussed her story of how her family came to Maryland from Sri Lanka and her thoughts on the U.S. immigration system. I guess let's start kind of with your background. What was your family's journey from Sri Lanka to Maryland and how did your parents make the decision to leave? Well, appreciate the question. Obviously, Sri Lanka has been in the news these days, and it really is such a tragedy to think of how an island that used to be called the Tahiti of the East or the Pearl of the Indian Ocean, you know, continues to be devastated, um, whether it's, you know, civil war or political strife. My family is part of the ethnic and religious minority, and my parents knew that they needed to get out of the country. Um, whatever way they could. They sought refuge in really any country that would take us. Unfortunately, no country would. And then uh, Nigeria actually had been recruiting teachers and both of my parents were teachers. And so that was our escape. Uh, So my parents had uh, jobs lined up there. We had bags packed and plane tickets in hand to move to Nigeria. When our visas came through, to come to the U.S. My oldest uncle on my mother's side had moved to the U.S. and he knew that things were only going to get worse in the country. So he had actually sponsored uh, the rest of the family. We thought the the applications had either been lost in the fold or that the country just wouldn't allow us in. And we hit the jackpot just in the nick of time. And so instead of going to northern Nigeria, we moved to the U.S. Thank you for that background. Uh, How did they kind of come over? Was it through just the sponsorship or did they move through a refugee organization? Um, Yeah, so it was it was through family sponsorship. Um, My we moved in 1980 and that was actually the same year that the Refugee Act of 1980 got passed. So, you know, there had been an informal system through faith based organizations, but it actually wasn't a federal formal program yet. And the ethnic um, and religious minority in Sri Lanka due to U.S. politics wasn't really recognized as a persecuted group. Um, so for a number of reasons, the U.S. refugee program was inaccessible uh, to my family, but we were lucky enough to come through another route, even though we were seeking refuge in the U.S. How long did that take, that full process? I know that you know my parents um, had, my, my uncle had submitted the application for my parents it was long enough that they just assumed that the visa wasn't going to come through. Um, but obviously, as I said, we were just lucky that, uh, you know, there's no lead up time. Um, you hear nothing. And then all of a sudden, the incredible life changing news comes through that, yes, the U.S. will accept you. Um, and that's how it happened for my family. Yeah, that is an unfortunate story that we hear from a lot of uh, people who have been in similar situations of taking so long. What difficulties did your family face when they first arrived and when they started getting settled in Maryland? Yeah, I mean, you know, for us, it was coming to a new country, um, a new culture, uh, navigating um, a, a new language. And really, we were lucky in the sense that we had a little bit of family here. 
but it was really starting afresh. A, a um, and my parents had very young children. Uh, my brother was three and I was nine months when we came here. So it was everything from braving a winter, having never seen snow, to coming with no jobs, um, just a couple hundred dollars in their pockets and just trying to figure out how could they be financially self-sufficient uh, without any real safety net. We were lucky that you know there were um, wonderful neighbors who could help out and babysit as they were, you know, trying to line up jobs and you know churches, temples that were willing to kind of step in um, if there was an emergency need, even things like clothes donations. But it was really difficult. Um, you know, when my dad started, he worked at a factory assembling widgets. He would bring home these circuit boards at night because it meant that him and my mom could assemble, you know, a few more. And that was just extra cash. I know we moved into a basement apartment in Baltimore as my dad became a teacher. And, you know, my parents would uh, have to figure out how to take $20 and buy groceries for a family of four. We'd go to the public libraries just to save on, on heat. So, you know, it was, it was challenging, but it was also an opportunity for us to see the generosity of Americans on display. And obviously it's kind of how we got by. Was there anything in particular kind of during this time that really helped your parents, obviously, uh, in terms of basic necessities, but anything the community around you did that really made a mark on them and you all growing up? Yeah, I mean, I think it was pretty incredible how my dad's, you know, the school system in Baltimore City really adopted us. Um, it was the superintendent who found the basement apartment that we moved into. It was the vice principal of the school who was kind of given the assignment and willingly accepted it to help us move in, help my dad start a bank account, even kind of give him the street sense of, you know, you don't, that limited cash that he had, right? We came from a country that, yes, it was in the turmoil of civic, um, you know, civil strife, but crime, uh, robbery, those sorts of things were not as prevalent. And so coming to Baltimore City, it was even just those hints on how to navigate those, those initial few months as they were, you know, trying to get their sea legs. Yeah, that's really amazing that the school system was able to step, uh, kind of step in and really support. Um, yeah. Were, were they uh, able to continue that support like long term while you were growing up? No, I mean, you know, it wasn't it wasn't a formal program or anything like that. Right. It was just the generosity of individuals. Um, and for my parents, it was just uh, some stability and steadiness as they landed. But ultimately, I find that that's true with a lot of our clients where it's not always a years long support system that's required. It's, you know, in some cases, it's just that basic help as, as someone's just getting situated. And for my parents, you know, they were, they were driven, they were excited. They wanted to contribute as quickly as they could. And so for them, they didn't really need the long-term support. I mean, I'm sure if someone had offered it, they wouldn't have said no, but, you know, I think that there's a little bit of self-selection in those who are willing to pick up, uh, move halfway around the globe with young kids, like they're survivors, right? And they'll figure out a way to not just survive, but thrive. As a daughter of refugees, what were the particular challenges and also benefits that you came across while growing up? Well, you know, it's, it's that proverb, it takes a village uh, to raise a child. I think I lived that. Our neighbors in that basement uh, apartment complex 
you know, they became our friends and then extended family. And I think that that sense of community was incredibly valuable because that was the culture that we came from. And I think it also was valuable that I was the daughter of teachers. Um, So education uh, and the importance of it was emphasized to me. So I feel like I have been a lifelong learner, Uh, was in school for a very long time between Yale College and Oxford and Yale Law. Um, And I loved it. And I think that at an early age, my parents instilled in me this view that education is the springboard of opportunity. I don't think I ever took anything for granted. You know, the pandemic has been difficult, I think, for all of us. But in one particular way for me, I really want our daughter um, to go to Sri Lanka to see what it was like so that she doesn't take anything for granted, um, that she understands the privilege that we have to grow up and live in in the United States of America. And so I think that having that perspective um, grounded me, but it also made me committed to public service. And you mentioned this kind of earlier on, how did you come to kind of find your community in Maryland where you felt comfortable? I mean, I think part of it was I grew up in places that were naturally diverse and I love the richness of those kind of intermixing cultures and embraced it as an asset, not a, you know, a weakness of the country. And then of course, you know, I, I think we felt a strong sense of patriotism and commitment to our community. Yeah, that makes sense. I grew up in DC and Maryland as well, so I can very much understand that and have appreciated it growing up. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So you kind of mentioned, because your parents were teachers, a strong value on education and that kind of uh, leading to the more public service side of things. But what made you really decide to work in public, public service and eventually come to LIRS? I think it's realizing how life my how different my life could have been, whether I had remained in Sri Lanka or moved to Northern Nigeria. When I was Michelle Obama's policy director, I ran Let Girls Learn, which was an international girls' education initiative. And it was, you know, in in small part, a response to the Boko Haram kidnapping of 276 girls who went to school um, in Northern Nigeria and were targeted specifically for that reason. But I also knew when I was in high school, um, you know, as the internet was kind of becoming a popular thing, doing a search of my name, uh, my full, full first name is Krishanti, and finding horrific stories about a girl who had uh, grown up um, in the same area as my parents, who, you know, was just going to school and coming back, was stopped at a government checkpoint. Um, and she was ultimately gang raped and murdered and dismembered by government soldiers. And to me, it brought into sharp and tragic relief how life, how different my life could have been if I had been in Sri Lanka, um, you know, if we hadn't had a chance to escape, uh, because that could have been me. Um, and I think it just made me appreciate that no one should have to face that. And I was incredibly lucky and I wanted to pay it forward. That's what brought you specifically to LIRS and the work that they do? Yeah, I mean, I think it's also that, you know, we, I was approached about this job at the end of 2018. You know, it felt like the height of the war on immigration and immigrants. And so it felt like an opportunity for me to do my part in in recognizing both the 
benefit to my family of America being a welcoming nation that accepted us, but also knowing that we too brought a benefit to the U.S. Um, you know, my parents were lifelong teachers. Uh, my dad only retired at the age of 80 after, you know, strong commitment for thir- 37 years to the Baltimore City school system. Um, you know, my mom uh, was a teacher at Poly in Baltimore, and then she retired from Morgan State and HBCU. Um, and so I think that's where it's important to understand that it is both um, the right thing to do, it's who we are as a nation, but it's also the smart thing for us to do as a country. And it, you know, it, it plays huge returns when we welcome. Specifically at LIRS, what's the work uh, you're doing now and what are you kind of hoping the organization will build upon in the future? Yeah, my, my view of LIRS is that we can't just be a partner to government. Obviously, we value the relationship we have in implementing some critical programs at the national level, but we have to be both a nonprofit and a social enterprise. And for me, what that means is making sure that we become more resilient as an organization by realizing the political roller coaster that any immigration organization rides, but also realizing that we've got to fight fire with fire. And right now, immigration is such a heated, politically divisive issue, and it shouldn't be. And so that's where I think it's really important to make the case that, you know, they, uh, in quotation marks, they are us. But I also think it's important to realize that our immigration system is so incredibly dysfunctional, that if we don't fix this system, we are doing a disservice to our country. And what that means in some ways is reimagining how we implement these programs. Um, how do we serve our clients? How do we make sure that we are more client-centered? Um, and so for us, that's really exciting things like launching welcome centers all across the country that are one-stop shops for clients. It's providing the mental health services that we know so many of our clients, particularly children, need. Though they may not be funded by the, by the federal government, uh, we look to the market to say, look, this is a dire need and we need, are going to fill it and we hope you will support us. Um, so it's been really exciting, the support that we've been able to mobilize. And I think that LIRS has a unique vantage point because we both provide the services, but we also work with our partners to create and implement policy and f- to advocate for change. As you said, you came to LIRS in 2018. How have you seen the I guess, environment around refugees change over the last few years? Are people able to come together uh, more now to work better, to, stay, to face the kind of individual and systemic issues that have been happening related to refugees? So, yeah. So I, I was approached about the job in 2018, late 2018. I started um, in 2019. And, you know, I think that Afghanistan and Ukraine have certainly shown the bipartisan nature of our work and how critically important it is as a matter of national security to faith communities, uh, to the U.S. as a global humanitarian leader, to be a welcoming nation. Unfortunately, I think there are strong political forces that are pushing a fiction that immigrants are criminals and crime perpetrators and leeches on public taxpayers. None of that is true, but we've got to make the case. We've got to make sure we educate Americans on 
why it's so important for us to welcome immigrants that, you know, that the system is broken. And so when people say, oh, well, they should come the right way that we make clear that, well, you know, most of the pathways that have been open in the past were closed under the prior administration. And so in many ways, we are rebuilding. But in that rebuild, we have an opportunity to reimagine. In this uh, rebuilding stage, how would you like to see kind of the changes to the refugee system? What do you think would be most useful? I mean, a perfect example is you look at the response when it came to serving our Afghan allies and Ukrainian refugees. We have a refugee resettlement system that should naturally be the response. And yet, under both circumstances, we implemented or the government implemented a program called humanitarian parole in order to have these clients come into the U.S. And so, you know, I think we need to stop with the Band-Aid approaches and recognize that if refugee resettlement is to serve humanitarian crises, then we need to be more efficient, uh, more effective in how those programs are administered. But then in other areas, you know, when it comes to economic migration, we have more than 11.4 million jobs that are unfilled. There is no reason for why migrant coming to the southern border should come that route as opposed to a system where they are granted a visa. You know, hopefully they have access to a permanent pathway so they aren't exploited by their employer. That's where we've got to realize that when we see what's happening on the global stage, when countries like China that we are competing with have gone from a one-child policy to a encouraging two children and then three children, there's a reason for that. We have a population that is aging and retiring. We have the lowest birth rate since the census has been tracking this. And so immigration has to be one solution that keeps us economically strong. And yet we have not updated how we implement our visa program. That was very well said. (laughs) I guess the last question uh, I'll ask you is, like what specific calls to action that would you like people to know about related to the work that LIRS is doing and what can communities do on the individual level to really help those uh, refugees coming into the US? Yeah, so what's so exciting is that we have so many different ways for people to get involved. Um, And so always recommend folks go to lirs.org because whether it is prayer, whether it is volunteering, whether it is pulling pulling out your checkbook and helping fund some of the programs that are so critical and yet there's no real support unless we turn to private citizens and foundations, there are innumerable ways to get involved. And what we find consistently is that our volunteers, our supporters believe that they get more from the experience of working with us than they give. And I think that speaks to the fact that this work is so compelling, um, it's personal, and we hope people will get involved. Well, thank you so much again, and uh, good luck with all your work. Oh, thanks so much. Appreciate it, and hope we can catch up in DC. A big thank you again to Chris for joining us, and a big thank you to our listeners for tuning in. If you want to follow Krish and LIRS more, you can find them at their socials at Krish Vignaraja and at LIRS org. If you're interested in being a guest on Journeys, you can reach out to us at commadc.org or message us on Instagram at commadc.
Take care, everyone.